Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. And really the idea behind these verses is the Apostle Paul, he is speaking to the Ephesian church. This is a a small congregation in the city of Ephesus in the first century, and he's encouraging them to grow up. He's asking them to mature in the faith, to mature in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. So he wants them essentially to grow up. Now, back in 1983, a psychologist by the name of Dan Kelly coined the phrase Peter Pan syndrome. Maybe you've heard of this. So Peter Pan syndrome. He went on to publish a book by the same title. Now, Peter Pan syndrome refers to the inclination of some young adults to not want to grow up, to not want to take responsibility for themselves and for the people around them. So according to Killy's research, uh, this problem is especially prevalent among young men who refuse to leave childlike behaviors behind them and who refuse to move into the role of functioning adults. Okay, so the idea behind the Peter Pan, it could really be personified as that 30-year-old guy living in his parents' basement, playing video games, complaining about how everybody else is to blame for his problems, his lack of a job. Um, He's yelling at his mom to bring him another plate of meatloaf and some drinks, that, that kind of thing, right? That's the Peter Pan. Now, in the same vein, Another book was published recently, it just came out this last year, called The Coddling of the American Mind. This was a New York Times bestseller, you've probably seen it around. And here the authors argue that helicopter parenting, you've probably heard of that expression, helicopter parenting, where parents are just maybe a little too involved in their kids' lives, trying to uh, correct all the problems for their kids, trying to ensure that the kid never has to face any kind of difficulty or challenge or trouble. So helicopter parenting coupled with this culture of, of blue ribbons for everyone, gold stars for everyone, trophies for everyone, has left an entire generation of young people ill-equipped to deal with the challenges of adult life. Some sociologists, and this may be going a little far, but some sociologists have suggested that the entire millennial generation has been affected by Peter Pan syndrome. I don't know if I'd go quite that far to pin this on an entire generation of people, but the point is a lot of people don't want to grow up, right? It's easy to shun responsibility. It's easy to shun maturity. It's easy to shun adulthood. It's tempting to long for the days of our youth when life was simple, when all of our needs were met for us. Now, Peter Pan syndrome is nothing new. Okay, this has been around as long as humans have walked the earth. And unfortunately, it affects more than just our emotional and our relational state. Peter Pan syndrome has decimated the spiritual lives of countless Christians who don't want to grow up in Christ. Now, a lot of us want to remain as spiritual infants. Why is that? Because growing up in the faith, 
Growing up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is hard work. Right? When we grow up in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, we face some painful things. We might be confronted about sin in our lives. Our false presuppositions about God might be challenged. Our idols might be exposed. We might discover that we're called to do something difficult for the kingdom of God. Our world might be shaken a little bit. It might be transformed. We might discover that our political and cultural opinions might need to be reevaluated in light of God's word and maybe submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. Growing up isn't easy because it requires us to leave some comforts behind us. But God calls us to grow up. That's what it means to be a disciple. So let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 16. And I'm reading from the ESV today. And he, that is Jesus Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further today. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, this word that convicts our hearts, that challenges us to grow in maturity, in knowledge and faith. We ask, Lord, that you would guide our study this morning, help us to grow into you, the head of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, since we're going to be jumping right into the middle of a book, this is not part of a series, we're between series here, I need to give you a little bit of context. Okay, so Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, you can really divide this into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 deals with doctrines relating to who God is and what God has done. Then when you go to the latter part of the book, okay, chapters 4 through 6, we're looking specifically at what God expects of his people, the church, in light of who God is and what God has done. So I'll oversimplify it here. We can really break it down into two parts. The first part dealing with orthodoxy, that is right belief. And the second part dealing with orthopraxy, that is right behavior. So these two things are inextricably linked. Right belief, right action. The two things coincide. Okay? What we know about God, we then put into practice. So that's how you could break down the book of Ephesians. Now, a couple of themes that are really important to this book and important to the context of what we're looking at today. Okay, one of the first major themes in the book of Ephesians is this idea of unity. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, you will see that unity is described in the Trinity. 
the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, perfect unity, bringing about the salvation of God's people. As you move into chapters 2 and 3, we see how this unity is manifested in bringing the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the non-Jew together. Because of the unity that exists in the, in the Trinity, because of the work of Jesus Christ, the barrier is broken down between Jew and Gentile, and these are brought together in one church. As you move into chapter 4, that theme is continued as well. The idea of unity in the church, unity in the body of Christ. There's one God, one Father, one Spirit, one baptism. You see that at the beginning of chapter 4. So the rest of the, the book, chapters 4 through 6, deal very heavily in this unity that exists in the church. So unity is the first thing. The second thing we see in the book of Ephesians is this idea of power. God's power in Jesus Christ. So if you go back and, and, and were to read the book of Ephesians from start to finish, you'll see several references here to Jesus ascending on high to the right hand of the Father where he reigns in complete authority and power. Complete authority and power over the dominions and the authorities of this world. The prince of the power of the air is subject to Jesus Christ. The devil is subject to Jesus Christ. And because of that, when you get to Ephesians 6 and you read about the armor of God, the context here is because Christ has authority, because Christ has power, we Christians can tap into that power through the work of the Holy Spirit and resist the devil's schemes. So unity and power. Now I mention these themes because we need to understand that these verses that we are studying today should not be read in a vacuum, okay? The call to be built up or to grow up in faith and in knowledge is possible only on the basis that we have entered into union with Jesus Christ through faith and that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So numerous times in this passage, Paul tells us to grow up. He says, grow up, be mature. Now, in verse 13, we're called to be built up in maturity. In verses 15 and 16, we're called to grow and to be built up in Christ. Now, the Greek word teleos in this passage, which appears several times, captures this notion of maturity. It's an important term, teleos, because it's used to denote the acquisition of a perfectly developed state of being, Okay, teleos implies that we are fully grown, fully developed, a perfect specimen at its peak of development. That's the idea. So when the Apostle Paul tells us to grow up, he's not asking us to move from infancy to adolescence. He's asking us to move from infancy to mature adulthood. So as we ponder this concept of maturity, in Ephesians 4 today, I want you to pay attention to three things in the text. The first thing we see in this passage is that maturity desires the whole Christ. The whole Christ. Notice the expression fullness of Christ at the end of verse 13. Maturity requires us to experience all of who Jesus is, the complete Christ, the whole Christ. In other words, spiritual maturity desires Jesus Christ and not just the benefits of Jesus Christ. What it's pointing us to is relationship with Jesus himself. That's what true discipleship is. 
Now, it's not wrong to want salvation. It's not wrong to want eternal life. It's not wrong to want the benefits of Jesus. But here, Paul is telling us that a mature Christian recognizes Jesus Christ himself as the object of our ultimate desire. It's about Jesus, not just about what Jesus gives us. Now, when I was a, a young child, I used to love to go to my grandparents' house. They lived just outside of town on a dairy farm in the country, and so I would love to go out and visit them on their farm. I loved to help out with chores on the farm. I loved to feed the chickens. I loved to help with the calves. I loved, I loved to just run around on their property. But more than that, I loved the fact that they had a pantry full of junk food. Okay? I didn't get this stuff at home. My mom didn't want me eating all this toxic stuff, but they had cookies, they had chips, they had soda, they had all the kinds of stuff in their cupboard that a kid would just love to have. So I used to love to go to the farm, to just be on the farm, and then to eat my fill of all this junk food that I shouldn't be eating. But as I grew older, though I didn't lose interest in the junk food, and though I didn't lose interest in the farm, I began to notice my grandparents a little bit more. I began to recognize that my grandparents are actually interesting people. I can have a relationship with them. I can talk to them. I could probably learn something from them. I could have a relationship with them beyond just going through their cupboard and looking for a box of Oreos. And my point in this is that sometimes we hunger and we thirst for good things while missing the very best thing. We rightly long for acceptance, for community, for salvation, for all of the good things that Christ provides and for all of the good things that the church provides. But do we hunger and thirst for Jesus himself? True discipleship begins with Jesus Christ, being with Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ begins not with something we do, but with something that God has done for us. Discipleship begins with the Holy Spirit of God regenerating us, opening our eyes, showing us Jesus Christ, guiding us into faith. So experiencing the fullness of Christ means knowing Jesus as creator, as sacrificial lamb, as high priest, as king and lord and master of our lives. Spiritual maturity is only possible when we learn to be with Jesus. So that's the first thing, being with Jesus. Now, the second thing, maturity seeks sound doctrine, for those of you taking notes. See, if we long for Jesus Christ and for relationship with him, we need to grow in him. And how do we do that? By knowing him. We need to understand that God says some things about himself, right? We need to understand what's important to God. We need to get clear as to what we believe about God and his activity in this world, and we need to get clear as to what we don't believe. Spiritual maturity seeks sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is this thing that stabilizes us, that grounds us, it anchors us, it roots us, in Christ. This is what's at the heart of verse 14 in this passage. Now, people living in Ephesus in the first century faced many of the same kinds of challenges, uh, spiritual challenges, that we face today. Uh, Christians were confronted with various religions and cults, right, with secular philosophies, with all kinds of idols 
that were vying for superiority in their lives. Paul was speaking to a church that needed to be rooted so that as to prevent being tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. And like the Ephesian church, we at Bergen Park Church need to ask ourselves, do we recognize bad doctrines, bad ideas when we see them, when we encounter them? Are we letting bad theology infiltrate our lives, our worship, our preaching, our teaching, our small groups, whatever it might be? Do we know our doctrine? Are we grounded in sound doctrine? Now, earlier this year, Ligonier Ministries, a ministry here in the United States, published the results of a survey that they had conducted on the state of the evangelical church, uh, really globally in the United States. So they were looking at a number of different churches around the country. And sadly, the studies showed that many self-professing evangelicals deny the inerrancy of Scripture. That is, they deny that Scripture is inspired, accurate, true, and authoritative in everything that it teaches. Statistics show that a surprising number of self-proclaimed evangelicals deny the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. We need to find out what this stuff means. Right, Because what this is saying is that people are denying that Jesus took on our sin at the cross. People are denying that God's wrath was poured out against sin and against Christ at the cross on our behalf. Statistics show that many self-proclaimed evangelicals deny the doctrines of hell, that God is creator, and that faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. These are not trivial doctrines. Okay, this is the foundation of what we believe. We cannot ignore these doctrines. To boast about our exiguously diminutive theological views is not a virtue. To revel in doctrinal ambiguity and ignorance does nothing to advance the gospel in this world. We need to take these things seriously. It troubles me deeply that as we move toward an increasingly pluralistic society, Christians are adopting universalism at an alarming rate. That is the idea that it doesn't matter what God you worship as long as you're sincere. It troubles me deeply that many evangelicals seem to be getting their theology from mainstream media, from pop psychology, and from the opinions of people that don't even like us that don't even like the church. Why are we so easily seduced by bad theology? Is it because we don't want to be at odds with culture? I think that's part of it. Is it because we're easily embarrassed by biblical truth? I suspect that's part of it as well. Is it because we're worried that we might look like we're a little bit out of touch with reality? I suspect that that plays a role. See, the problem is that secular, popular opinions will continue to change. Scientific paradigms will shift. What we take to be fact will change, and the interpretation of these putative facts will change as well. You see, bad ideas will inevitably be replaced by worse ideas, and we will spiral downward into a hellish pit of perpetual intellectual insanity that continues ad infinitum, ad absurdum, 
ad nauseum. We could probably add some other things to that as well. If we fail to grow up spiritually, we risk being tossed back and forth by the waves. Verse 14, right? Blown here and there by every wind of teaching. See, verse 14 is a call to throw down the anchor, to root ourselves in what God says about himself rather than what men say about God. Have you ever been out in a fishing boat? You know how easily the boat can move, right? We don't have a lot of lakes here in Colorado, but if you've been in a fishing boat, even the slightest breeze, the slightest current will move that boat. You have to throw down the anchor if you want to stay stabilized, right? It works the same way in our spiritual life. Maturity is anchored in sound doctrine, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, maturity is built on God's love in Christ. So verse 15, we're looking at verse 15 and 16 here. Verse 15 tells us that speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. The body needs to match the head. We're called to speak the truth in love. Now, by speaking the truth in love, Paul isn't telling us to tell the truth only for truth's sake. There are times to tell the truth for truth's sake. This is not what Paul's referring to. Now, some truths simply don't need to be told. If my wife asks me how a new outfit looks on her, she may not need a detailed evaluation of the aesthetic virtues of that outfit or the lack thereof, right? My children may not necessarily always need to hear my true opinion on a piece of artwork that they've, they've just put together. Sometimes you just... Keep your mouth shut. I'm learning that. I'm still learning. But sometimes you just keep your mouth shut. We don't need to announce to everyone everything on our mind at all times, right? We can probably all think of examples where we just need to just shut our mouths and and not say it. So the truth to which Paul is referring here is specifically biblical truth, spoken for the reason of pointing the hearer to Jesus Christ. The most loving thing that we can do as disciples of Jesus Christ is to tell the truth about who God is and what God has done. Theologian and pastor Mark Dever, in a recent book on discipleship, says that the motive for discipling others begins in the love of God and nothing less. He has loved us in Christ, and so we love him. And we do this in part by loving those he has placed around us. He goes on to say, speaking the truth in love means doing deliberate spiritual good. It means strategizing how to tell others of the gospel and how to bless others by living out the gospel. Now, last week in London, protesters from the Black Lives Matters movement clashed with some protesters from an English nationalistic movement. Maybe you saw this in the media this last week. Now, the clash resulted in a white man being beaten by a group of Black Lives Matters protesters. And I've got a, a photo of this we're going to put up on, on the screen. Now, what was interesting about the whole thing is that in the midst of the foray, a black man from the Black Lives Matters movement, his name was Patrick Hutchinson, he picked up this counter-protester who was being beaten, he lifted him over his shoulder, and he carried him to safety. Now, we don't have to like the politics of either side of this clash. I'm not here to give commentary on any of that stuff. 
The point that I want to draw your attention to here is that Hutchinson loved his enemy. Okay, he recognized the truth of the intrinsic value of his enemy. He allowed the truth to guide his love. Now, I don't know if Hutchinson is a Christian, but I think Christians can learn something from this. The media is calling him a good Samaritan, right? His compassion is being compared in the media to that of Jesus himself. His image is being used to disseminate a small point of light in an otherwise very dark world that we live in. But above all, I think this action embodies truth in love. Truth in love. You see, Paul is reminding us here that truth must be accompanied by love. Truth without love is harsh and unconvincing. Love without truth is devoid of direction. Truth in love will ultimately lead us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If we want to grow up in maturity, as mature followers of Christ, we need to be people of love guided by truth. So here's what it comes down to. How do we grow up into mature discipleship? How do we treat our case of spiritual Peter Pan syndrome and grow up? Now, this might seem like it's a little bit counterintuitive, but in a world where everyone's a leader, we need to get better at being followers. Growing up and being a, a better leader in the church really means being a better follower. And we love to talk about leadership in the church, leadership development, leadership classes, leadership books. But what Paul's telling us we need to do is be followers, followers of Christ. Everyone wants to be the big alpha in the room. What Paul is saying is we need to be humble. We need to submit to Jesus Christ, to his authority. Do we love Jesus? Do we love our neighbor? Do we know the word of God? And are we seeking after sound doctrine? Are we willing to put aside our prerogatives for the good of the church and for the good of the community? See, if we want to be better leaders, we need to be better followers. If we want to be better disciple makers, we need to be better disciples. Being mature begins and ends with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to begin this time of prayer right now confessing that we have not been good disciples. We have been blown here and there by the waves, tossed by various doctrines. Lord, we haven't been always good about loving you and loving our neighbor. Lord, we ask that this word would truly penetrate our minds and our hearts as we go from here today. Help us to ponder what we've seen in your word. Help us to grow up into Jesus Christ, to put away childish ways, to put these things behind us. Lord, would you give us the empowerment of your spirit to walk in faith in Jesus Christ, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus has done and has called us to do. We praise you, Lord. We thank you that you've called us to maturity. In Jesus' name, amen.